And that will be a big day. We'll have a lot of people here, so we'll need all the help we can get. So Thursday, sign up. Gosh, I'm gee. Sign up. Sign up. What day is it? What day did they actually come that day? 30th? You knew, okay, I didn't know. It's a Thursday. I knew that. I knew something. So sign up and do that. Hey, second thing on baptism. Do, do, I, I just wanted to mention again. If you have not been baptized and are interested in being baptized, please contact me and let me know. Let me know. I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. If you're not sure, I know sometimes people go, well, I think I was baptized when I was a little baby. I'm not sure. I don't remember that. And, you know, I don't know. How does that all work? What does it mean? Just call me. Talk to me. I'd love to answer your questions. But if you have not been baptized, we would love you to be baptized. And and on that, too, I mentioned before, you're all invited. That's a that's a, a, a an all-church event. That's something we celebrate together. So even if you're not being baptized or no one that you are particularly close to is being baptized, come anyway and worship and celebrate with us because it's fun to do. And then last thing I would just mention, I was asked, again tonight, and I know with our, the summer people coming and going, about uh, my recent trip to Nicaragua. And, and I just wanted to update real quick again that next summer will be our, our third ever, third national vineyard conference in Nicaragua. And it will be quite a celebration, and I would love to take some of you with me. So if you have a heart to, to kind of see what God's doing in a totally radically different environment than maybe you're used to seeing what God's doing. I would encourage you to uh, to come see me about that. Our dates are, it's a rough estimate right now. It will be the last few days of July and the first few days of August. So I don't have an exact date yet. I will as we get closer. But it's somewhere around the 27th, 28th of July we will leave and somewhere around the 4th or 5th of August we'll come back. The cost for that trip will be about $1,500 per person. And that's contingent on airfare, because airfare has, as any of you that have flown know, gone up a lot recently. But again, it'll be a a kick. It it really will. I, I guarantee if you go, you'll have a blast. I guarantee it. It'll be hot, you'll sweat like a pig, but you'll have fun. It's just so hot and humid, but it's, it's great. So with that, let's press on to, to bigger and better things. I, I have been through the summer, uh, for those of you that have been in and out, we've been talking about family and about, about family relationships and some of the relational dynamics that take place in family. I know probably none of you ever have issues in your family, right? No, everybody says no. You all are liars, um, yeah, we all do. We all have that. And, and, and we've been looking, attempting, I, I've made a concerted effort to look at some of those family dynamics from a, from a uniquely kingdom of God perspective. And I think sometimes when we are able to do that and get outside of the box a little bit in our normal way of thinking, it really helps us. It's, it's refreshing. It gives us a whole new perspective. And so that's what we've been doing. And last week... Uh, we talked a little bit about marriage and sort of a kingdom perspective on that. And one of the, one of the points I made last week, I want to just kind of review and, and uh, start here tonight, was this. It, it's, it's in some ways directly related to, to marriage, but in some ways it's, it's related to a bigger picture of, of just life. And, and, the, and the point was this, that we really are defined by our, our Father. We're defined by Abba God our dad, our father, uh, our relationship with him, and that our identity 
is really found in him and who we are as his children, as his sons and daughters. And it's not, our identity is not found in any one of the number of things that our culture, our society, the world around us might say it's found in. And sometimes we begin to, uh, you know, gain identity from things that the world says, like our, our, you know, our relative beauty. Maybe someone's really beautiful, and that becomes their identity. Or maybe they're, they're wealthy, they're rich, and that becomes their identity. Sometimes it's our titles or our accomplishments. And I, I even used Michael Phelps as an example last week because everybody had Olympic fever. And here's a, here's a young man who has accomplished an unbelievable human feat, who's done something that no human being has ever done before and no human being may ever do again. Fantastic, fantastic human accomplishment. Should, should be applauded. You should stand up and applaud for him. Not right now, but, uh, but and you should cry. You know, I, you guys, cry. okay, a true confession's time. When people, when the gold medals are going on and the people are on the stand and the, the, the national anthem, does anybody cry during that ever? Okay, good. I'm, my daughter does. Where, where did you learn that from? Uh, so sometimes I cry. You should do that. But let me say this. All that said, if, if that becomes Phelps' identity, if his identity is gold medal winner, it's going to ruin his life. It's going to ruin his life. It, it will be his downfall. And I pray, I, you know, I, I pray that that doesn't become his identity, that he finds his identity in who he is as a, as a child of God and not in a, a most amazing human accomplishment. So my point simply last week was that our identity is in him. It's not in those, those other things. Um, and, and so I, I wanted to review that. And, and now I want to I point something out. And, and this may be obvious. Maybe you all already know this. But I want to say it tonight because I, in the interest of just clarity, I, I felt like as I was preparing this week and kind of... Typically, I spend the whole week thinking about what I'm going to teach on, and I pray, and I kind of mull things over my head, and I, and I realize I, I should say this, and, and this is what I want to say. As we go through this series, and, and we talk about different relational dynamics, and we started back uh, earlier in the summer talking about honoring your parents, so that was really a message directed towards children of all ages, towards their earthly parents in light of their relationship with their he- heavenly parents. We talked about... Um, singleness, about being single. We talked about uh, sort of the courtship process and what that might look like in the kingdom of God. We, we talked about marriage, and tonight uh, we'll continue uh, on that same line, and I actually want to uh, talk about divorce a little bit tonight. But here's what I wanted to say, is that maybe you find yourself thinking on any specific one of those, or maybe all of those topics, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. This doesn't really apply to me. That's not really where I am at life right now, or that's not an issue that I'm dealing with. Um, and what I want to say is it does apply. It does apply to you. And, and, and that every one of these relational dynamics applies to every one of us. And, and, and this is the reason. It's because we all are family. We all are family. And if that dynamic applies to someone else in the family, it applies to me, doesn't it? You know that. You know when someone in your family is going through a challenge, the impact it has on your life. And I believe that that's 
principle holds true here in this family. If, if anyone here is struggling with their relationship with their parents, if anyone here is struggling with their singleness, if anyone here is struggling with who, who they are in terms of uh, you know, somebody that maybe somebody else would want to marry, if anybody here is struggling with their marriage or because they've been divorced, then we all struggle with those things. And conversely, if anyone is rejoicing with those things, if anyone's saying, I'm blessed by relationship with my kids or my parents. I'm blessed by my marriage. I'm blessed by who I am as a single person, whatever. Then we all rejoice with those things. So every one of these dynamics, these, these relational dynamics, has impact on, on every one of our lives. And I, I, just, I just wanted to put that on the table. I, I, just, I hope you guys can grasp that. I hope as you listen, you listen with that ear. You listen with the ear of, this, and this is my, this is my heart. My heart is that as a family, as the family of God, we, we grow in our ability to relate to one another in a, in a kingdom way. We grow in our ability to re- relate to one another as God's sons and daughters, as God's people, and we, and we, we grow and, and we deepen our understanding of what that really means and what that really looks like. And sometimes that might be hard to do, and it might be mean getting down and dirty and, and I just think that that's, that's the goal that's what I really want this to be about because I really believe as, as I walk my life out with God and as I read the scripture that he cares about that stuff that it means an amazing amount to him that we learn to love one another that we really learn to care about each other and where we are in our life and what, what we're going through in our lives and that that's so important. I, I really do. If See, in the series, if you've been, been here at all, you, you realize that Jesus applied the first century patriarchal structure of society to our relationship with God. And he said, everything you know and everything you think and everything you believe about the Father being the supreme authority and the father being the one who calls the shots and who runs the show I I want you to know that that really all belongs to God that he's really the one he's the one he's the one that we that we look to he's the one who we want to honor his name he's the one whose will we want to carry out he's the one whose family we we want to continue and if that's true if if God really is that in our lives if 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 he really is our Father, if He's our Abba Father, and, and if we really are His kids, His children, then we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, we really are. We really are. And how we learn to relate to one another is really important. So there you go. That's my intro tonight. So tonight I want to uh, I, I want to probably get myself in trouble. I I, I want to tackle a tough issue tonight. I want to deal with a tough issue. This is a teaching message. Sometimes messages are you know, I think it'll be more inspirational. My hope is to really inspire you all. I don't know if I ever accomplished that, but that's my goal from time to time. Uh, tonight it's really more informational. I, I really hope to teach as I have. Uh, looked at and evaluated scripture, a tough issue, a, a tough issue. And so I want to kind of dissect that a little bit, really kind of get into it tonight. And, and I, and I want to, the, the topic obviously, as I mentioned earlier, is Jesus and divorce. And so pray with me to that end, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this. Lord, um, 
life is uh, full of relational dynamics, and it's, uh, it really is a long and winding road, and it's up and down, and it's bumpy. And uh, there are days of amazing joy, amazing joy. And there are days of challenge, Lord, beyond uh, our ability and our own humanity to sustain. And uh, my heart, our heart, is that we come together as a body and that we really do lift one another up and endure one another. And I, I just pray tonight you would open your word, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to receive. You would give us grace and you would help us to, to look at... Um, a challenging and difficult time in the lives uh, of some of your people f- uh, from time to time. So bless your word tonight. Bless our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this, I, I realize, and I-, I hope you realize, it's a big issue. It's a big issue. It's a big issue in our culture. It's a big issue in the church. Divorce rates are um, high. Now, uh, statistically, in, in, you know, I mean, there's it's impossible to find reasonable statistics because there's a a million different ones. Here, one thing is this. Uh, in the last eight to ten years or so, divorce rates are actually down. They're a little bit lower than they were. So you might on the surface go, wow, that's good. That's good news, right? Well, the reason that divorce rates are down is because marriage rates are down. Fewer people are getting married, so therefore fewer people are getting divorced. And the reason that people are not getting married is because they don't want to get divorced. No, it's true. It's true. If, if we live together, and if it doesn't go well in a few years from now, we'll just call it good and go our own separate ways. We don't have to pay lawyers. We don't have to deal with courts. We don't have to do any of the legal crap. We'll just, we'll just separate. That's fine. So, so that's really the essence of the lower divorce rate. The truth is this, that divorce rates have, for, for years and years, generations and generations in our country, hovered right around the same place. They're, they're right about 50%. And by 50%, I mean this, that the, the number of divorces per thousand is about half of what the number of marriages per thousand is. So, so roughly there are half as many divorces as there are marriages. You know, and I don't know how that equates, whether that means that half of all marriages end in divorce or not. It just means that there are way too many. And depending on who you trust, who you read, who you believe in, um, there, there are statistics that would indicate that that number is roughly the same uh, in the evangelical Christian church and outside of it. There are other statistics that would disagree with that, that would say it's, it's actually quite a bit lower. My guess is this. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. And that's just based on my own experience, what, what I know and who I know. Um, it's, it's pretty close. It's not significantly different. That, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. It really is. Um, so, again, back to what I said a minute ago, just considering the magnitude of that issue, if for no other reason that it just affects a lot of people, a lot of people, how, how we choose to view this and how we learn to relate to people is important. You, you, you are going to. You will at some point, have opportunity to pray with, to minister with someone in a divorce situation, either currently, past, or upcoming. Okay? It's, it's out there. So, so it's important. It, it's, it's important how we just, to have a, a, a framework for how do we approach this? How do we relate to folks? I've had uh, experiences 
where I've had people come to me uh, in a d- number of different situations. Sometimes folks in our uh, congregation, our church, sometimes uh, people from uh, other churches. And uh, I've had this situation where someone comes to me and say, we really want to get married. We would like to get married. We've been together now for X number of months or whatever time frame, and, and we really want to get mar- married. The church that we are currently attending will not, will not marry us. They won't allow us to be married. We're, we're not eligible to be married because one or the other or both of us have been previously divorced. And so we're just coming to ask if you would be willing to marry us. Um, that's just such a, a, a painful situation to be in. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard situation to be in. It's a hard question to have to answer. Uh, it's sad. It's sad on multiple levels. Um, you know, and here's, here's the thing. And I want to I say this. You know, on one level, you can look at that and go, that's just harsh, that people are just being mean. On another level, you can go, you know, I, I really actually, I have to respect the church that they came from because they are doing what they believe to be right and upholding how they interpret Scripture. Now, I disagree with their interpretation of Scripture, but I respect the fact that they at least have a standard and are sticking to it. I I have to respect them for that, and and I would not look down on anyone for that, anyone for doing... It is such a challenge to with your whole heart, seek to be right before God and to do the best you can do and to uphold your convictions there. Sometimes that is so, so challenging to do. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, so, so again, and I guess I say that for this reason, that, you know, I, 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 I approach this topic as I do many topics humbly. And, and with, I come to you with my best ability to, to really do the best I can to interpret Scripture and to bring it to us in a way that would honor God. And, that, and that's really, I, I don't profess to have all the answers, but I do profess to do that. Um, I want to begin tonight at, at this point. I want to talk about something I talked about a few weeks ago. If you remember me, um, those of you that were here, the messages that I did on, on courtship and preparation for marriage, I talked about God's purpose for marriage in our life. And I gave, I listed three purposes that I believe are, are uh, scriptural purposes for marriage. The first is that marriage reflects the, the image, and then I made up a word there, uh, the triunity of God. And let me say this. God, okay, we, we all have a, a difficult time understanding the Trinity, right? The Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. Three distinct beings with their own personality, their own role, their own relationship, and yet they're one. And how does that work? And you've heard all the little illustrations about it, you know, and none of them really explain it. Marriage is a relationship where God says, to become one flesh. And it's, it's a unique relationship in all the relationships in, 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 in the human world between people. And in a way, it really does more than any other illustration that anybody can think of reflect the image of God in that being separate but being one. Because when we get married, Scripture says we really do become one flesh, and yet those two people do 
distinctly remain their own individual people at the same time. And that's a very unique relationship. And, and I really do believe it's the best illustration as two, not three. I understand all that. But it's still the best possible illustration of what God is really like. So in a marriage, we really do, if we're in a godly marriage, we really do reflect the image of God in a unique way that can't be reflected. in. Now, we all reflect the image of God in a million ways, but this is a unique way that can't be reflected any other way. So that's, that's a big purpose for God-ordained marriage. Second purpose is marriage is a refiner's fire. We all understand that our growth personally as individual people in Christ is very, very important, that that's the goal that as we walk this life out with him, that we become more and more like him. That's what we want to do. We want to become more like Jesus. We hope to be more like Jesus tomorrow than we, were, than we are today, than we were yesterday. We want to be more, more loving, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more self-controlled. What did I forget? Um, I forgot. C- kind, gentle, I don't know. You, you get the point. You get the point, right? We want to be more like that. And that's a process. That doesn't happen overnight. How many of you ever got saved and got zapped with the Spirit and so filled with the Spirit of God that you were totally, completely sanctified and never thought a bad thought, never sinned, never did anything again? I'm sorry, kids. It doesn't happen that way. I wish it did. That would be so fun. It just doesn't happen that way. What happens is we get saved and our hearts really do begin to change. And we begin to realize, I don't, I, oh, you know that? That's not a good thing. I, don't, I, sh- I shouldn't do that anymore. And it's this process that goes on through our life. And that process of growth happens largely in relationships with other people. As we interact with other people, it, iron really does sharpen iron. We grind up against them a little bit, and we learn to grow on those things, right? You understand that? So marriage, what a, what a better place for that to happen. In a marriage, you're, you're in the, the deepest and most intimate of relationships, and it really is a place where we grow and where we learn to be more patient. Amen? You can say amen. Anybody that's been married longer than your honeymoon knows that, right? You come to the conclusion that, oh, gosh, I have to give a little bit here. I have to serve. I have to love. I, I have to lay some things down. And so, so marriage really serves as a refiner's fire, as an as a, as a, as a agent, a tool in the hands of God to help us become the people that he's called us to be. That's the second purpose. The third is that marriage creates a dynamic duo. And we, we talked a little bit about how we all serve God. We all, and there's unique ways that we can be used by him. But in marriage, God will really use us together in ministry and in serving him uh, to, for for his purposes. One of those we, we talked about, you know, as our purposes as his kids, one of them is just to expand his kingdom. And and look, here, and this is, I think this is good stuff. Even biologically speaking, you get married, you have kids, right? And most of us that are Christians, we endeavor to raise our kids as Christians. We want them to believe in Jesus and grow. So the church grows that way. That's a good thing. That's good, by the way. That's God's plan. But we also can expand God's kingdom, build his family, in spiritual means. And as, as a married couple, you mesh together in that. You probably have, some of you, I know, have had ministries together, and you've had people in your homes, and you've prayed with them, and welcomed them, and cared for them, and, and God's done great things. So, so, so those are the purposes that God has for marriage. Now, uh, I'll point out here, uh, you, 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 you might know this, maybe you didn't, but um, that my personal happiness is 
conspicuously absent from the list. Making me happy is not part of God's purpose in marriage. And I I bring that up simply because I think that many people believe that that is the reason that we get married. I want to get married because I will be happier. This person will make me happy and my life will be fulfilled. Now, I will say, I believe it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. You get married and you have a relationship with God and God will allow, will bring happiness and joy into your life because of that, but that's not the reason. That's not God's intention. Nowhere in Scripture does it indicate that me being happy is part of God's reasoning and purpose for, for being married. Um, but but I think we would we would note, uh, you know, note to self. It's also one of the chief reasons that marriages end. Marriages end because, well, this person just doesn't make me happy anymore. So I guess what I'll do is leave them and go find someone else that does make me happy now. You know, if you read the uh, tabloids, the newspaper, whatever, you know, the uh, celebrities who seem to have a shorter duration and a higher percentage of marriage than the general population uh, will often cite irreconcilable differences as their reason for marriage. Well, irreconcilable differences translates, I'm not happy. I, I, I just, I want out. Okay? Uh, so, so here, my, my, my scriptural encouragement, I believe, and my personal counsel to you is this. If you're, if you're not happy in your marriage, I don't believe that's a, a reason to bail out. I don't believe that's a reason just to give up hope and quit. I, I also don't believe it's a reason to ignore the issues at hand. I think exactly the opposite of that, that it's it's a huge reason to face the issues at hand. And, and, and I would say this, if, if, if you're unhappy in your marriage, to address the issues and to do everything you can, everything that, that's humanly possible, to work those things through. And you probably need to get some help in the process. And I don't know, everybody has different perspectives on counseling. I, I personally am an advocate. I think that there are very good Christian counselors out there who can do a tremendous amount of good in helping you. So if you want to see a professional counselor, I would say that's a good thing to do. If not, there's some tremendous material out there. You can just maybe read a book together and work it through together. Uh, you, you know, you can maybe find another couple that you trust and just say, hey, would you guys commit to us? Would you help us? Would you pray with us? Whatever it takes, but just work those things through. Um, it's definitely, definitely, definitely worth addressing the issues, not giving up hope, and, and not bailing out. Last year, we did a series on vineyard values, the, the, the vineyard values, you know, sort of foundational for our church and for the vineyard churches at large. One of those values is reconciling relationships. And I think when we talked about reconciling relationships, in fact, I know because I talked about it, um, we focused largely on sort of um, cultural reconciliation. So racial reconciliation, uh, you know, reconciling poverty and, and, and the, the poor with the less poor, things like that. But let me say this, I think it also includes those personal relationships. I think the heart of God is that we would be reconciled with our family and our friends and um, certainly, certainly, certainly with our spouses. And so it's, it's, a, it's important to, if you are unhappy, to not let that become the reason you bail, but to, 
allow it to become the reason that you move forward together. Now, I want to try to answer, golly gee willikers, I'm going to skip one. I'm going to go right to two. My first point that I was going to touch on was, if you're, what, what about it, the question if you're married to an unbeliever, and if you're married to an unbeliever, you are supposed to stay in that relationship as long as the unbeliever will allow you to stay in that relationship and wants you to. So there you go. That's in First Corinthians 7. There's the text. Um, so the, the second question is this, and, and this is the bigger, bigger question, the one I really want to address, and so I'm going to try to go quick on this. Um, more, more important question. If, if a person is, has been divorced, a person has been divorced, can they remarry? And that, that's the question we want to answer. I'm, I'm functioning, I am approaching this question with three presuppositions. My presuppositions are these, and you can tell me if you share these or not. One is that there is no hierarchy of sin. There's no sins that are worse than other sins, okay? Uh, you can't, there's no, you know, some in our mind there is, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Uh, you know, we think of sins as being worse than other sins, but the truth is, in the eyes of God, there's no hierarchy of sins. Second presupposition is this, that there are no deal-breaker sins. There are no deal-breaker sins. There's no sin that is so bad that it exiles us into outer darkness forever that we can never be returned to God's grace and forgiveness and goodness. Now, I know that some of you right now are thinking, what about that whole blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing? Let's just say that's another message for another day. We're going to take that off the table. Assuming that no one here has blasphemed the Holy Spirit in the last couple of weeks, we'll just take that off the table. So with that off the table, and, and again, I understand that there's issues there, but there's no deal-breaker sins. Okay, no deal-breaker sins. The third thing is this, third presupposition, judgment is not our job. Judgment is not our job. Um, and again, we're really good at not doing our, or doing what's not our job, aren't we? We, we do. We love to, to, to be judged. Uh, but it's really not our job. It's not our job. And we, we, cannot, we, we cannot afford to begin to question the motivation of our brothers' and sisters' hearts. We just cannot afford to do that. So those are my presuppositions. What makes this issue so challenging is this, is this verse right here, the fact that Jesus on multiple occasions says this, Matthew 19, 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So if you read that verse right there as it is by itself, it sounds like it says basically, you know, it's, it, you come to the conclusion, I think, reasonably so, that if, you do, if you're divorced and you get remarried, that you commit adultery. If you marry somebody who's been divorced, that you have committed adultery. And therefore, if anyone has been divorced, they should not ever be remarried. That's the conclusion you would come to if you just read that verse on its own. Typically, typically, this verse is read, I think, some by people, and certainly by some people at the day, the time that it was written, as as sort of a matter of legal technicality. What are the actual grounds for divorce? What what can I utilize in my ability to get out of this relationship? Okay, and it hinges on the conclusion to that question. Hinges on really the, the legal definition of terms, and, and I'm just gonna say, I really believe when we begin to look at Scripture that way, something happens, and, and in my estimation, it's something not good happens, and it's this, that we, be, we begin to view God as a judge, and we begin, begin to view the Bible as a, a, a book of law, 
and, and we begin to view the kingdom of God as a courtroom. And, and I believe when we do that, that, that we really have lost sight. We've lost our way. I, I want to present a, an alternate view. My view is this, that God is our Father. He's Abba. He's our Dad. He loves us very, very dearly. We're His kids. He's He's giving his life to us. He's infusing his life into us. He's doing everything within his power and his will to, to, to make us his, have his life in, his, you know, in us. And so when you, when you look at this verse with that perspective and in context uh, of, of where it comes in Scripture, I think you begin to see something a little different. Now, the verse, Matthew 19... Matthew 19.9 is actually a response to a question that was asked to Jesus by the Pharisees. And let me say this, that should be our first clue. Anytime the Pharisees ask Jesus a question, something's up, okay? That's just the way it works. The Pharisees did not ever go to Jesus and ask an innocent question. They never came to Jesus just wanting to know. Now, other people did. But when the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, they had an agenda. They had an agenda. And it should be our first clue to, to really consider and look into and think about any response he gives to a question that the Pharisees ask. The Pharisees came to him and they, to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This was a hot topic of the day. This was a topic that had not only... Spiritual implications, it, it had social implications, it had political implications, and it had legal implications. And it was a very pss, hot, 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 hot topic. It was, I, I really believe, I, thought, I, I think it was just like the issue of gay marriages today, this day. This day. It is a it is a legal, political, social, spiritual question that overlaps all of those areas. It's the question, the question politically slash legally is, should gay people allow to be married? That's the question. And politically speaking, people will vote based on their opinion of whether that should happen or not. But many people will base their opinion on their spiritual convictions, what they believe is right in the eyes of God. And it has huge, huge, huge social implications. So I'm not going to say right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm not going to touch that issue tonight at all. All I'm going to say is that this issue is just like that issue. It had all those dynamics to it. It was hot. It was contested. It was all over the place. And the reason is, the reason is this, that there were two schools of thought on this issue. There were two different rabbinic schools. One of them was the school of Hasid, I think. I can't remember the other one. Um, but one school said this, that a, a, a man could divorce his wife only if she committed adultery. That's the only reasonable cause. The other school said no. No, 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 no. Really, a man could divorce his wife for virtually almost any reason at all. Whatever he wants. Any reason. It just like I said before, burn the dinner, you're out. Goodbye. Um, note, uh, s- side note, 
women can't divorce men for any reason. They're not even in the conversation. Okay, that's a side note, cultural side note. Um, the debate was really rooted in the interpretation of a single Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house, and then it goes on and talk about what happens after that. So the entire debate between these two different rabbinic schools was centered on their, their interpretation of that verse. Let me just say right here, I tell you, Debate over the interpretation of Scripture is nothing new. It's been going on for thousands of years. And again, I just, my heart is, it's, it's tough. And I, I just don't think that when a brother or sister is endeavoring to, with their own heart, live out their own convictions based on how they've come to interpret Scripture, that that's worth breaking fellowship over. I just don't. That's where I'm coming from. Okay, back on the subject. The two schools of theological study had come to those two conclusions. The reason they'd come to those two separate conclusions is that the words here, two words, are are very ambiguous. The first word is displeasing. The word in the original Hebrew is a very ambiguous word. They weren't sure exactly what it meant to be displeasing to him, from what I can gather, and I'm not, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, I'm certainly not a Hebrew scholar, but what I can, from what I can gather, the word displeasing means something very much like our English word displeasing. She, she was displeasing to him. It means something kind of like that. Second word, even more ambiguous, is the word indecent. Indecent. What does it mean if she's become displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, does it only mean that she's done something sexually, or could it be something else as well? Or if, if in fact, it does mean only that she's done something sexually, does it mean that she's committed adultery only, or could it be something else? Could, could it be maybe that she didn't really commit adultery, but, you know, maybe just played around a little bit? Or maybe she didn't even, maybe she had an emotional affair. Maybe she fell in love with someone other than her husband. Does it mean that or not? Or or does indecent mean that she burned the dinner? Or that she gained a few pounds? Or or that she didn't clean the house? Are those things grounds for being displeasing and indecent or not? And it's unclear in the original Hebrew. It was unclear to the rabbinic schools then. And that's why. That's why this debate was raging. And understand that that's the debate that the Pharisees are trying to suck Jesus into by asking this question. It's divisive. And their intention is divisive. It has political, legal, spiritual, social implications. And here's the thing. They know. The Pharisees are smart. Jesus is a threat to them. He is growing in popularity. More and more people are following him all the time. They know if they can get Jesus to take side on the issue, it'll divide his followers and undermine his popularity and distract those people from who he really is and what he really wants to do. 
That's why they asked the question. I think it's still the same tactic the enemy uses today. I don't think anything has changed in 2,000 years. I think the enemy today still tries to get the people of God divided over issues that are sometimes meaningless, most of the time less than central, and distract them from who God really is and what his real purposes are and get them fighting among themselves. And that's exactly, exactly what they were doing to Jesus. I just... Don't you just love Jesus? I, he just does not play the game. He's just not going to play the game. Jesus says to them, Haven't you read? At the beginning, Creator made them male and female, and He said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, notice what's happened. Okay, let me... The Pharisees ask a question related to the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, what he does is he directs them back to Genesis chapter 2. He says, look, forget that question. Here's the deal. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. This is God's highest and best. This, This is what God wants to happen, that a man would leave, that they would cleave, that they would be united as one flesh, that... No one would separate that. that that's, that's what God wants. The Pharisees don't like that answer. Well, uh, well, why then did Moses command that man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So, look, they ask a question about Deuteronomy. Jesus points them to Genesis. They go right back to Deuteronomy again. Why then did Moses say this? They're challenging Jesus' answer. Jesus comes back again. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It's not that way from the beginning. Jesus, look at, they said, why did Moses command that? They're interpreting Deuteronomy 24 as a command. Jesus says, that's not a command. It was permission God granted. He said, okay, it's a concession that he gave because their hearts were hardened. That's why God allowed to do that. But that's not what God wanted. That wasn't his purpose. That, 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 that was not at all what, what God intended to happen in the first place. What was commanded, and I won't go back to it now, but in Deuteronomy, if you read that text again, it wasn't commanded that they divorced, but what was commanded is if you did divorce your wife, that you gave her a certificate of divorce. Why, why would that be? Well, the, the reason would be this, because uh, then people would know that she was divorced and she could remarry. That she could remarry again. Um, as an unmarried woman, obviously, her options were fairly limited. She had really no means of survival. And so if she had a certificate of divorce, it was clear that she was truly divorced and, and was free to be remarried again. And the text actually says that if you go on and read that. So I'm not just making that stuff up. Look, marriage is a covenant relationship, and God honors covenants in his word. But God also acknowledges that sometimes covenants are broken. Sometimes they're broken. God God acknowledges that. God doesn't pretend as though no covenant that's ever made is broken. He acknowledges that they that they can be broken. So I'm, gonna, I'm trying to go as fast as I can go. So here's what here's the scene. There's this this dialogue going on, this discourse back and forth. The Pharisees ask this question. Jesus 
doesn't answer the question directly. They come back to, to Deuteronomy again. What about this? Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the way that it was intended. And, and only after that dialogue then does Jesus say in verse 9, I tell you that anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, adultery. Okay. Um, what Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, look, you guys are arguing among yourselves about the legal technicality of what's okay to divorce somebody and what's not. Really what you're asking is, how do I get out of this? What, at what point can I justify my misbehavior? At what point can I wash my hands of this marriage and say I'm moving on of here? And the reason, the reason that Moses permitted divorce to happen was because they had hardened their hearts. And by asking that question, what you're really doing is you're revealing your own hardened hearts. What you, what you ought to be asking, the question that you really should be asking is, how do I ascribe to God's highest and best? How, how do I enter into a relationship that will be the kind of relationship that no man can tear apart? How do I enter into a relationship that really holds up God's ideal and his purposes? That's what you should be asking. I want to point something out to you here, and, and I, I'm gonna, I'll finish quick. But I think it's worth pointing out. The clause there that Jesus says, except for some morality, only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in the other places that Jesus addresses this issue, Mark and Luke, you can read those, uh, he doesn't have that clause. Uh, again, my question is, why is that? Why is it in Matthew, not in the others? I don't know the answer. There are a number of scholars, and I'm going to share with you what they think, because I think it's plausible, that believe that the reason is this, that Matthew was a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience that the Gospel of Matthew is, and we know this, is distinctly the most Jewish of the four Gospels. And the reason that that clause is in the Gospel of Matthew, not in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, is that in the Jewish culture of the day, a person was promised or pledged to be married to someone in a betrothal sort of period that lasted anywhere from one to two years. And if during that betrothal period that woman was to commit adultery, then the husband could, in fact, during that time, divorce her. Now, you might be saying, hmm, that sounds familiar. I think I've heard that somewhere before. And if you have, I would say that where you heard that is in the story of the birth of Jesus. Mary was pledged, not made, but pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He was a nice guy. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So there's a whole school of scholarship out there that says that that is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew when he says, except for sexual immorality, and that that's the reason that it doesn't show up in the other texts. And that really the only time that it was justifiable to divorce somebody at all, even for that reason, was during that betrothal period before they were actually married. Now, again, that's possible. I don't know if that's true or not. I think it makes sense to me. 
But I know this, and this is what I believe, and this is what I want to communicate to you guys tonight. I believe Jesus' purpose in Matthew 19.9 was to hold up God's ideal and to expose the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. I believe that's what he was getting at. This is what God's ideal is. This is God's purpose. And you guys are just self-righteous. And I think we have to read the text with that perspective. If we read it that way, I think that we see that, that it's not an escape clause that Jesus provided, that it's not, he's not trying to revoke or, or repeal Deuteronomy 24. If, if God, via Moses, had allowed for divorce, Jesus is not now coming in and saying, you know what, the Old Testament wasn't strict enough. I'm going to get even stricter, and I'm going to say, no, you can't get divorced. He's not saying that. Um, I think he understood... Deuteronomy 24 as being a permission that God granted because his people had hardened their hearts. And I, and I do not believe, I do not believe that Jesus was saying that a woman or a man who has been divorced cannot be remarried. In other places that Jesus addresses this in Scripture, there are several other places where not only does he not say that, but he assumes that a divorced woman will be remarried. In Matthew 5, he says, anyone who divorces his wife You've heard it said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's really essentially putting the blame on the husband for the relationship right there, breaking up. He's, he's pointing to him, saying, you've caused this to happen. And he is, in fact, at that point, assuming that that woman will remarry again. Um, He's saying, in, in, in essence, that God's, God's covenant relationship in marriage, the, the beautiful relationship that God designed for marriage, should last a lifetime. It should be for a lifetime. It should, it should not be torn apart. It shouldn't be torn apart. To the Pharisees, he's really saying this. He's saying, look, if you guys want to get technical, if you, if you want everything to hinge on the the, the the technical interpretation of the law, then you really should be comparing yourself to God's ideal. That's what you should be comparing yourself to. And, and when you do that, technically, any and all sexual relationship outside of with your spouse in marriage really then constitutes adultery. And none of us would be qualified to be married. Well, most of us. And Paul, and I, I, we're late, so we'll skip it, but Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians um, where he quotes Genesis 2 at well, uh, as well. Um, but la- last thing, um, Matthew 5, something else Jesus said. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this God's standard is this high. God's ideal is not only that no one would ever have a, a relationship, an intimate sexual relationship outside of marriage, but you wouldn't even entertain one. You wouldn't even think about one. You wouldn't even look at someone with that in mind. And Jesus is saying that's the standard. That's the standard. That's the standard. Anything short of that is missing the mark. Jesus' purpose, his whole purpose in Matthew 19, really was to explain expose the Pharisees' self-righteousness, reveal their hard-heartedness, and, and really to show them and to show us, okay, uh, to show us that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We all are sinners in need of God's grace, every one of us. So, so here's the thing, you know. I, here, here's the deal, and we'll, we'll, we'll pray. If, if God is this guy that's focused on legal technicalities, and if salvation is a matter of always making the mark, always hitting the mark every time, always being perfectly technically right, then we're all toast. We're all going straight to hell. If, if, if there's no way back from here once you've sinned, then why are we here? Why do we bother? And, and let me say, that wouldn't end with a sexual issue. We, we could talk about gossip or gluttony or lying or anger, or any one of a hundred other ways in which any and maybe all of us have fallen short. But I thank God that He's not that guy. God's not that guy. Everything does not hang on a legal technicality. God is our Father. He's, he's Abba, He's Daddy. We're His kids. He's pouring His likeness, His DNA, into us. And the kingdom of God is not a court of law. The kingdom of God is a family. And it behooves us to learn to relate, not like a jury, but like a family. In a family, we receive and we give the love that He gave us. We love as He loved us. That's what we learn. In, in, a, in, in, a, in a family, we share in his joy. We share in his peace. We, we recognize that Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom and that his kingdom really is about life. It's about healing. It's about wholeness. It's about forgiveness. It's about grace. And that doesn't mean that, you know, grace doesn't delight in sin. It doesn't say sin is okay. Not at all. What it says is this. Grace empowers us to move away from sin. It empowers us to move away, to say, that's not the life I want to live anymore. It transforms us from the inside out instead of the way the law seeks to transform us, which is from the outside in, which just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. He... See, I, I think God allows us everything we have. I think His grace allows any of us to have any relationship and to ever be married in the first place. He allows us, if the call of God on God's people is what we said it was in the beginning of this series, it's His grace that allows us to honor Him as our Heavenly Father. It's His grace that allows us to carry out His will in this life. And it's His grace that allows us to further His family. So let's stand. My apologies. I just want to pray for marriages tonight. Jesus, we acknowledge tonight before you that uh, marriage is, is, is really a holy covenant relationship.